and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, as always, lead faculty for the history program at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. Today, I am talking to Christina Lamro, a recent graduate of the Master of Arts program in Public History at Southern New Hampshire University and a soon-to-be doctoral student at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas. Today, we're going to talk about her background, her decision to apply for a doctoral degree, and her advice for others looking to follow in her footsteps. And, just to keep everybody interested, we're going to talk a bit about murdered prostitutes and the apparent evils of bowling. What is your name, and what do you do? My name is Christina Lamro, and I am currently the Parking Appeals Coordinator at Fitchburg State University, as well as a private tutor, but I will soon be a student in the doctoral program at UNLV. And that's great, and we're going to come back and talk a little bit about the uh, application process and your experiences with UNLV. But before we get to that point, uh, what is your academic and professional background? I'm actually uh, a little bit different from most historians. I started, I'm now 40, so I started out in high school and my early years in college majoring in accounting. And I worked for years as a cost estimator at a manufacturing company. And in my 30s, I decided to change over to history. And I think part of it was the research. I did a lot of research and writing for my job in the manufacturing company. And I just loved doing that. I loved collecting the information and putting it together and presenting it. So as time went on and I decided to change careers in my 30s, I ended up in history. And I've always loved it, but just never thought of it as a major until later on. Like I went to Fitchburg State and I took like a couple courses in history and I was like, that's it. I'm hooked. I really want to do this. And I've been, that's what I've been doing ever since. So I got my bachelor's at FSU, my master's at FSU, both in U.S. history. And then I went on to SNHU to get my MA in public history. And what are your overall research interests, either as part of your um, capstone process or the thesis at your, for your other um, master's degree? What, are, what have your research interests been to this point? Uh, well, my number one research interest actually is prostitution and vice in the uh, 19th and early 20th centuries. I also like print culture, material culture. I came across a story, and this is where it all started and how I ended up this. I had initially tended to be a medievalist. And during my senior year at FSU, I came across the story of a prostitute murdered in the 19th century in some newspapers I was going through for the, my capstone course. And I was fascinated by her story. Nobody else had written about her, so it was totally original scholarship. And I wrote about her in my senior year as my capstone project. I then transformed that into my master's degree thesis. So it was like a micro history of her life. And then I expanded off of there. I looked at fashion as it relates to prostitution, print culture as it relates to prostitution, um, material culture, and you know moral reform and some other aspects of that, all just based off this young girl. She was an Irish immigrant's story and just kind of spanned out from there, different things she dealt with in the 19th century or what was going on when she was there living in New York. And, you know, she was only 20 when she was murdered by her uncle. So, and it was, it was a very dramatic story, a very, very dramatic story. And I just became fascinated with her. So medieval history went out the door and I've been focused on U.S. history and, and a lot of that 19th century prostitution and vice and things like that since then. Yeah, that's a really interesting topic, and it, it is always great to have kind of a uh, a hook like that. You've got kind of a dramatic yeah. moment. I mean, obviously, it's unfortunate for the, the, the poor young woman, but yes. it provides an interesting intro to the topic for, for historians and for your audience also. 
Was this part of your public history program at uh, SNHU also? What I ended up doing when I was at SNHU, I, so my capstone project, I did an online exhibit. And what I focused on was the relationship of prostitution and print culture from 1690 to 1930. So it's still an ongoing online exhibit. I still need to do a lot more work on it, but uh, I focused on taking newspaper excerpts that talked about prostitution or tawdry subjects or things just to kind of see like a timeline from 1690 on how did the, how did print treat prostitution or prostitutes or even sex in the you know in the papers and things like that and I really want to focus a lot on that once I go on to you um, UNLV I want to be able to continue doing that print culture because I I adore the print culture aspect I adore going through all these old newspapers and finding these interesting facts and things that other people don't you know they don't see or they don't come across you know and you're just reading this little article or a little ad and you're, you're finding something interesting to talk about so I've actually used a lot of print culture in most of my research that I've done. And and so it sounds like you're going to continue with this project at the doctoral level. Yes, I'd like to continue with this. I want to tell Maud's story. I eventually want to turn it into a book, but I want to look at the print culture aspect. And I'm thinking maybe I could do something with a comparative history between the East and the West, because a lot, have been, a lot has been written about East Coast prostitution during the 19th century. There's a lot of you know great historians who have focused on it. And... I want to see maybe I can do something comparative between the two, see what the East Coast is versus the West Coast, but I want to base that a lot in looking at print culture and seeing how they're treated. And, you know, I haven't got to explore the West side yet, so that's going to be interesting for me, something new to do. Yeah, and with uh, UNLV's location out in the West and their emphasis on the history of the American West, I imagine they'll hopefully have access to some really good sources for you. Yes, they actually have a women's archive, a Nevada women's archive out there too, so I think that's going to be interesting or at least maybe I can contribute to that if there isn't anything in my particular field yet there but I think that's a good thing about them is they do have that archive of women's history so and so when you say print culture are you talking about uh like newspaper or journalism mostly mostly newspapers um when I was doing the the capstone project for SNHU I I did got to, I actually got to look more into like the history of journalism too just to kind of coincide with what I was saying about my actual examples I was pulling out of the papers and how different, how journalism has changed and all these different shifts in the 19th century that, you know, they wouldn't talk about prostitution because that was taboo. And then they shifted to, they would talk about prostitution because it was okay now. And they were trying to get readers and things like that. And then I'm also, you know, I was looking at like moral reform books and things like that, that organizations published that talked about prostitution just to see how they referred to prostitutes and prostitution. Were they, were they, you know, were they victims? Were they, terrible women what were they you know it's interesting seeing all these different views on that and they also have brothel guidebooks things like that that were published in the 19th century that were actual would tell you which house had a prostitute and what that prostitute was like so it was interesting that they would sell those out they would it's a whole big thing like it was and it was meant to make fun of like moral reform reform literature and say oh well you're talking about prostitutes and things like this and you're not supposed to but these books would come out and publish and be like stay away from this place this has a prostitute in it, but it was really to tell these men to go out there and go find one at this house. So, and, and some had reviews and how wonderful they were and how horrible they were, different reviews, and that, and that was great. Oh, it's definitely wow. some interesting things. It's a Yelp for prostitution. <laughs> it is. It exactly is that. So That's, it, it that's was, amazing. Yeah. So if you're covering from 1690 all the way up through the 19th century, I imagine there must be kind of a dramatic change in how prostitution was treated in print culture over that. I mean, that's a pretty long span of time. It is. I mean, a lot of the projects 
again, I focus on like the journalism and the history of that, but I pulled out all these examples. So I don't have a lot yet, but I'm, I'm starting to gather more so that I can start seeing more of a, like a larger trend with that because there was a period of time, like they, you know, I have some papers, like I think one of my earliest examples is from 1690 or right around then. And they were talking about like sex in the French court or something like that. And that was, that seemed like pretty tawdry for back then, even in my mind that you wouldn't do that. And then, you know, they stopped for a little while, and then they went back to talking about it. And the, the big shift was was during the, it was the 1830s. It was actually when another prostitute, um, Helen Jewett, was murdered. And then that's when uh, there was a shift in, like, these newspapers in New York started talking about her story and wanted to print it where they would never really printed much about that other than, you know, oh, a prostitute was arrested or something. It was nothing, but this was like a big dramatic story that they talked about and, and it kind of shifted. And then after that, when you get to the time that the prostitute I wrote about, which was 1872, when she died, it was like a, a novel reading this in the newspaper, like it's completely insane that, that it went from like, we'd say a few things to here's this big story front page news and it was in found in newspapers even going across all of america you know her story because it was just and then it just went away and nobody talked about her again and it was like it never happened and uh, which i thought was interesting but you know when you talk about now like prostitution in the news is not a big deal everybody talks about it, everybody mentions it's not a big deal but during the 19th century it was definitely taboo for a while then it kind of kept getting printed and then other people still didn't like that a lot of the moral reform societies just didn't think it was proper conversation and a lot of depending on who you were, if the upper class citizens didn't think it was proper conversation and it shouldn't be there. So Yeah, Helen Jewett seems to be kind of the the go to example that everyone jumps to when they're talking about yeah. prostitution and all that. So it's great to know that you're kind of resurrecting a lesser known story uh, to show yes. that it's not yeah. we, we shouldn't base everything solely on the one experience of Helen Jewett. We should be expanding no. to others also. And I think that's great. Yeah, because that was the yeah, again it was like the eighteen thirties and mine's in the eighteen seventies. So it's kind of I actually one of my Earlier papers in graduate school, I did a little bit of a comparative between Helen Jewett and Maud Merrill, just because it had been so many years in between the two, and just kind of seeing and trying to figure out why why Helen Jewett's story became timeless. People still talk about her and everything, but nobody knew about Maud Merrill. And that I think, from my own research, it was like the next biggest murder of a prostitute in the 19th century was Maud Merrill. So it's interesting to see how it didn't. Like, she went away, but Jewett still remained out there. And, you know, and, but, I mean, she had historians write about her and everything like that. But still, it was, even years later, I'll find references to Helen Jewett in the early 20th century that is not the same for Maud Merrill. Nobody remembers her or anything, which was a big part of why I wanted to write her story, because I love the microhistory. I love telling somebody's story that nobody else told, because who else is going to say anything about her? Mm-hmm. Nobody cares. She was a 20-year-old. She got murdered. She's dead. Nobody cares. I care. <laughs> yeah. So looking ahead to the next big step, uh, you recently applied and were accepted to the graduate program at uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. So how and why did you arrive at this decision to pursue a PhD, and how did you decide which programs to apply for? Well, pursuing it at 40 was a big decision. Uh, you know, at this point, a lot of people are already into their careers, and I already had a career, so I'm kind of in this, this limbo between working towards a new career. So I had a few opportunities to apply for positions in higher education and administration, but as I was finishing my degree at SNHU, I realized how much I would miss the interaction with other scholars as well as the research and writing that comes with working in the history field, and I could not imagine being anywhere else. So I, to me, the next logical step was to go on for my PhD. 
and I ended up basing my decision on where to apply a major, on two major factors, the faculty and the location. Uh, I wanted to work with historians who had shared interest in my areas of research, which should always be a, pri you know, a priority when you're applying for PhD programs. And then I considered the location. And I had initially, when I went for my master's degrees years ago, my first one, I had planned on going out to the Nevada region because I always just liked it. And I didn't do it, and I kind of always regretted it. So it worked out well with UNLV, especially because it was the area I wanted to be, the faculty is great, and it's something I wanted to do before and didn't. So uh, so what is the application process for the PhD program these days? What, what, were the, what are the steps involved and what do you need to have in order to uh, apply? All of the programs, they, all the applications are online now. So a lot different from when, <laughs> when I first started going to school. So everything's yeah. done online. Um, you basically, and all of the requirements were essentially the same. You need to have your GRE scores, two or three letters of recommendation, your statement of purpose, a current CV, a writing sample, and copies of your transcripts. Your writing sample, the, that's where I know it's the biggest difference. So some schools only wanted 25 to 30 pages for a writing sample. UNLV actually won my entire graduate thesis. They actually were, I guess, were willing to read 99, 100 pages of my writing versus <laughs> or, some of the other or, ones. So, or at or least scan skim it. it. Yeah. <laughs> but it was funny that they, you know, I was surprised they asked for it. So because I, when I was applying to the programs that only wanted 25 to 30 pages, you're like, you're trying to pick your best work, which if you have a graduate degree already, that's your, that's your thesis. You're like, that's my best work. And I want to, I want to showcase that, but oh, now I got to make it 25 to 30 pages for purposes mm -hmm. of your writing sample. So you're trying to pick the best chapter or the best, because again, I still think that was my best work. So you're trying to pick it out. You're trying to do everything. So you have to be careful. Like if you're, if you are going where you're only submitting 25 to 30 pages, you really want to be able to showcase your research and writing skills in that limited number of pages. So you need to pick your best work on that. Keep on top because it is you have so much to remember, especially when you're playing at multiple places. Keeping your checklist for each place and make sure they're receiving everything because you're relying on your other schools to send transcripts. You're relying on your professors to send their letters of recommendation. And we had a big problem with mine. All of my letter of recommendation email requests were going to everybody's um, spam folder, so nobody was getting them. So I ended up being actually a little late on on them because I was keeping track, keeping track, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, they're not getting them. Why have they submitted them yet? So I'm, you know, you got to keep on that because. It's technology, so snafus happen. As it, that is a very nerve-wracking <laughs> process, and yes. these days, at least, yeah, we've got the computer, so you can log in and see the status and all of that. Back, you know, back in my day, uh, when everything was done my through mail. My day is still that day too. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah well, we're the same, we're the same age, so yeah. So the uh, yeah, so you understand it too. But yeah, back yeah. in the day when everything was done over the mail, and you had right. no idea, you were just hoping that right. you, that the, that the yeah, mail was delivering like, things. Right. Did you get it? And now it's like, oh, it's online. It's there. It's uploaded. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to actually have to talk to people. I just want to yeah, look at a yeah. checklist. One question that may be of interest, especially to a lot of the students at SNHU and, 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 and elsewhere, at any point in the, in the application process or even since you were accepted, did you hear any concern or hesitation from anybody about the fact that one of your degrees was from an online-only program? I actually did not. No one said anything about it. So I think I think that's a good sign for, I mean, you know, for SNHU too, that people are not questioning that that's a good degree to have from that from that college. So I went to state universities versus like a private college. So for me, I kind of felt like, oh, what if that's not enough for them? But it isn't. They base it on what you've done and your, and your recommendations and the work you can show that you've done. So... That's what I've heard too. I've, I've talked to professors at 
you know, research institutions like UNLV and elsewhere. And I've asked, and I have asked them uh, occasionally whether the, you know, the source of the degree enters into it in any way. And realistically, it tends to, it seems that it doesn't. It's usually, like you said, right. based more on the quality of the the, the writing samples. Um, and of course, there's all the other yeah, stuff that goes you, into yeah. it. Transcripts, GREs, letters of recommendation, all that stuff goes into the overall decision. And I had actually, I had spoken to someone I had known who um, has a doctor in education, and he went to Harvard. And he even said, he says, no, he says, what we look at, he goes, is what your GRE scores are, your letters of recommendation, and your statement of purpose are like the major thing in your writing sample. And it's mostly like your writing sample and your letters of recommendation. Yeah, I think that's that's about what I've heard too. Good. Okay, and so what are your overall goals at this point for the uh, PhD degree? Well, one of the um, great aspects of the program at UNLV is that my major field will be in North American culture and society, and my minor field will be in public history. So I think this is very important because it prepares you to work in both a traditional academic setting and in a museum or other history type organization. Um, as you know, there's not, the tenured positions are very limited now. So you need to kind of have skills, I think, in both areas so that when you go out there, you can get a job either as a professor, you can do the traditional academic setting, or you can move on and work at a museum or an archive or something like that. For me personally, I tend to enjoy, enjoy the traditional academic setting. I mean, ultimately, I would like to be a full-time professor and continue researching and writing, but I would be very happy working in public history. I, I originally, actually a while ago, when I went to go for my master's degree, my first one, I thought I was going to go into archiving because I, I like that, you know? I, I don't know. I like looking at old documents, and I'm having fun doing that, like I do with the newspapers now. And what my professor actually is like, maybe you should be an archivist or something, you know, because you, you want to, you know, really work with old documents and see everything and so I mean as long as I get to continue my research and writing I could probably be happy in any area as long as it's history you know I don't know what it's going to be like I don't know what the job market's going to be like you know it's not always feasible to say that I'm going to get to go out and and be a professor a full-time professor and do that because it's just again the jobs just aren't out there as much which isn't a bad thing because there's jobs in other areas mm -hmm. so it's just a matter of getting to do that and I, I really want to be able I work as a tutor now so I, I like the aspect of being at least able to teach somehow in some form and even if it's you know at SNHU a lot of people that you know a lot of professors I had there they have day jobs working in a museum or something like that and then they get to be adjunct professors which is great because you get the, the best of both worlds in my opinion. Agreed. So what advice do you have for listeners who are thinking of going on to graduate school at the PhD level? Is there anything that you would do differently or things that you thought went really well that might be useful for other students to be familiar with? For me, again, because I, I kind of started this so late in changing careers and everything, is just don't be afraid to continue your education, regardless of what your age is, where you are in life, whatever it is. You know, People laugh at me like, but you don't have like a standard job. I'm like, I know, but this is what I'm doing. This is what I like. I'm happy for this. So I think that people are like, no, I can't make this big change or I can't do that. And I'm like, I did it. So pretty much anybody can do it. And one of the other things I think is important is make sure you have a good working relationship with your professors because they've been through the PhD. They know they're going to give you the best advice. They're going to, they know everything that you're going to deal with. They, they can encourage you they can warn you they can do everything they need to do to tell you what life is going to be like as a PhD student you know and I have one professor who's always like you're going to love it don't worry you're going to love it because you get nervous you're nervous it's a big deal you know and she's like don't worry you're going to love it so you want to make sure you have those you know good relationships with your professors talk to them and listen to them when they give you advice about going on for your degree and also you know you're going to 
need them for your letters of recommendations later. So you want to make sure that you're doing work that stands out because I had to ask professors from three years ago to write me letters of recommendation. That's a long time. I haven't worked with them in three years and I was still able to get them because my work stood out. So you want to make sure your work's standing out so that even if you're, you decide later on, years later, that you want to go on, that these people remember you. I think the only thing I would do differently, I wish I had learned a foreign language sooner. I do not know one. And when you go for a PhD, you need to know a language, at least one. And if I learned, I learned the hard way that if you're going to be a medievalist, it's like four or five. So you need to know a foreign language. I wish I had learned one sooner, learn one sooner rather than later, because I'm actually going to be learning a foreign language during my first year of the, of the doctoral program. So I'm already going to have a lot to do, and I'm going to add that on. So I think that was like... The one major thing, I wish I had started that process sooner. That's a good point. I had I <laughs> forgot about that. Um, that's, yes. one that's one advantage that we Americanists have is that we usually only have to learn one. Um, right. And for one. most of us, that's going to just be Spanish. Uh, but yeah, I right. remember in, when my PhD program, I, I would you know share an office with uh, people that were doing yeah European history or, or you know Asian history, and so they were having to take these immersive like Japanese language classes and all of that to be able right. to translate primary sources. And it's yeah, it definitely depending <laughs> on where you're going. Definitely, if you're going into something like ancient, medieval, any of those, you're definitely going to want to start sooner because you need to learn a lot of language. I took a couple of semesters of Latin, but it's not enough to actually pass an exam on it or anything. So, you know, you you want to learn it sooner rather than later. I I will be able to. I know UNLV. It's actually two, but they will let you take a, um, a statistics course, I think, for your second one. So that's good, at least. And some of the other, other some one of the other um, colleges I apply to let you take anthropology instead of a language. So the, it's, there's some flexibility, but the 90% of the ones I looked at, you needed to know at least one language, if not two. Yeah, there are just some aspects of, you know, calling yourself doctor at the end of it. There's just kind of a necessity that everybody thinks you should right. have. You <laughs> need to jump through some certain hoops to be able to call yourself that. To wrap up here, do you have any history-related recommendation for us? Anything that has stood out to you recently or anything that really inspired you in the past that might be interesting to other folks listening in? I'll pick something probably pretty random that other people don't talk about. And one of my other areas of interest is the history of bowling. Uh, I'm a bowler, so that's my one hobby. I love it. I've been doing it for years. So I wrote a paper on that discussed legislation and morality, morality as it related to bowling between 1650 and 1900 in the United States. Through, like Everybody goes bowling now. They don't think anything of it. You bring your kids, you have fun, you do whatever. But during the 19th century, it was associated with gambling and vice and all these like horrible things. And again, because I do, I like to read all the newspapers. This is how I found all of these. Um, so states were passing legislation that banned buildings of bowling alleys near churches and schools because they thought it was just going to be, you know, a terrible thing to have nearby. It was just completely associated with all the bad vices. Nobody wanted you doing the moral reform groups were getting involved with it. They didn't want their husbands or bowling or anything like that. And uh, there's articles and reports during this time of people um, in Massachusetts blowing up a bowling alley with a powder keg. And then there's a group of women in Maine who destroyed a bowling alley with with a bunch of axes. So they were just they just thought they were the most horrible things on earth. And I think it's funny compared to today where everybody's out having fun and not realizing that there's this huge controversy during the 19th century and even starting a little bit earlier that that bowling was bad. It was a vice and nobody should be doing it because it's, a you know, some of them, they thought it was a sin. Okay. <laughs> that's, yeah, I that's, picked a random one. That's that's awesome, <laughs> and there's no way we're going to be able to top that. So I think I'm just going to call it a day and say thank you for joining <laughs> us today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for joining us today. 
If you have any questions or comments on this or any other podcasts, uh, please drop me a line. SNHUHistory at gmail.com. I'm Rob Denning, and thanks for listening.